For early access plus exclusive content, facilitated discussions, live one-on-one Q&As, and more, become a patron at patreon.com slash brucepointset. Welcome back to the Blacktastic Adventure, a virtual exploration of Oregon's Black diaspora. I am your host, Bruce Poinsett, and on today's episode, I speak with Alexis Braley-James. Alexis is the CEO and founder of Construct the Present, a leadership activation and culture-changing consulting firm. They provide strategy implementation for organizations through healing conversation, and more importantly, Alexis is, you know, DEI often comes off as a buzzword to many people. Some people even treat it like it's, you know, some sort of buzz industry. But for those who are doing the work the right way, it offers immense potential in terms of, um, you know, changing paradigms and changing just how people are cared for and the uh, environments we create. And one of the things I love about the way Alexis approaches this work is that, you know, it, she does this for real change, even down to her, uh, down to her, you know, I'm out of the office emails, which I just want to, I want to read for you just to get a, give you a little flavor of what she brings to the work. So When you get an out-of-office email from Alexis, it might read something like this. Hi there. Thank you for your message. The pandemic has created an increased sense of urgency regarding response time. Construct the present sees urgency as a form of white supremacy, and interrupting white supremacy is integral to our business model and my personal well-being. Because I put a lot of thought and energy into every email, I have thoughtfully created my schedule to accommodate the space needed to do so. I respond to emails on Mondays and Thursdays. If you truly believe this is urgent, you can reply and CC Leanna at constructthepresent.com. Thank you for supporting the work of dismantling white supremacy within our world and workplace with love and connection, Alexis. Again, she takes this seriously. She names white supremacy. She attacks white supremacy. And she does it out of a love for the people and a genuine desire to achieve justice for the people. So we had a great conversation and I think you're really going to enjoy it. Check it out. Thank you for coming on the program today, Alexis. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's a privilege to be here. I follow all your work and you're just killing it in the game. So thanks for inviting me. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, You know, for the audience, we kind of just give a little background as far as how we got connected. You actually, how was it? two, three years ago now, you did a presentation for, God, right? (laughs) So you did a presentation for organization I volunteer with, Respond to Racism, Lagos Wego, on just, you know, white allyship and, you know, close-knit communities. And, you know, I'm always curious as far as, you know, people doing presentations, especially on anti-racism and LO, if you had any, uh, I don't know, just what your experience or brief time, I guess, in LO, like if you had any observations or takeaways or just general thoughts on 
you know, uh, the community or what's happening out there? Yeah, I think my experience, I was in a extremely impressed with the turnout because um, I think how I got connected to respond to racism is your mom, Willie Poinsett, had come to that same conversation that I did at the rec center, the Lake Oswego rec center. And that was like maybe five people <laughs> and then coming <laughs> to respond to racism where it was easily 30 plus, you know, packed in that church. I was like, oh, wow, like these people are showing up. You know, I think the conversation was interesting because I don't know if any action came out of it, but um, just the amount of people who are willing to spend their evening talking about white allyship on like a Wednesday or a Thursday, maybe it was, that left me feeling hopeful. I, I know that hasn't necessarily been the whole experience and especially recently i imagine the people who are doing all those terrible things weren't in that room you know mm -hmm. but um yeah i think and i think that sort of highlights the nature of white supremacy right in that you can show up to a conversation and take no additional action and that's totally acceptable there's no kind of accountability to take what you learn and, and act on it yeah i mean the the optimist in me says you know, it's a it's a process. I also very much, you know, I me. Mean, I'm a pessimist as far as some people definitely come into the room, and there's there's no growth that is going to be happening. But you know, part of me says, okay, it's a it's a process. You know, there's some people are going to come in there, and you know, I think I think what was really, uh, you know, just what really it's uh, the word I'm looking for. I really just like enjoyed and I really appreciated about your presentation was just, you know, just some the frankness, like mm. being like, look, the kids are not okay. Just coming in here and patting ourselves on the back for showing up is not okay. And, you know, it seems like, of course, but so many people are just like, when they come into these, especially these spaces where it's just a bunch of white people with a bunch of money, they feel like there's like a sense of intimidation to actually, even though the work is, you know, we're talking about social justice, we're talking about, you know, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. People get really skittish about like actually pushing the rooms or actually saying what mm -hmm. needs to be said. And so it was just, it was refreshing for me to be like, okay, you have someone in here who's like, no, it's not all right. We have to, you know, I know some of you may take nothing from this, but I'm not just going to sit here and not say it. I'm not just going to sit here and be like, oh my goodness, it's, I just, it's so great seeing your smiling faces <laughs> as we talk about racism tonight. You're doing, you're, this is the hard work. Yeah, no, I don't Good spend a lot of time patting people on the back. You know, I reflect <laughs> and think like, wow, that was really impressive. But in the moment, I, I, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And I think part of that is growing up in Oregon, you know, like I have a familiarity with white folks and in particular old white people that I think you can only get growing up in in Portland and in particular in Oregon and being biracial because, you know, like my maternal grandparents raised me and they are old white people for lack of better explanation, you know, like my grandma's in her 70s right now, but they raised me. And so when you have that intimate relationship, I feel a little bit more comfortable on where the pain points and where the push points are. But also, 
I'm comfortable, right? Because it doesn't feel different for me. It feels like, oh, I've been at several family reunions where everybody on my mom's side of the family is white and most people are over the age of 60. And so being able to navigate in that world is like a second nature to me. So I don't walk in intimidated. I'm like, yeah, let's be real. Let's talk about it. Let's get to the point because the more time we waste trying to euphemize the conversation, the less time we have to actually get to, so what are you going to do about it? And I think in that conversation, we spent quite a bit of time on like, so what now, you know, like what's respond to racism going to do? What are you as an individual going to do? Um, how are you going to move this conversation forward in your community? Right. Right. So yeah, can you just talk a little bit more about kind of like growing up in like, what part of Portland did you grow up in out of curiosity? Yeah, I actually grew up in Aloha, Beaverton, so suburbs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I went to Aloha High School is where I graduated from. And Aloha, for people maybe who aren't from the Beaverton area, Aloha is in the Beaverton School District. But when I was there, it had the reputation of being like the poor school. That's where all the poor people lived. And my family um, was able to live in the neighborhood we lived in because of Section 8, because my mom was a single mom and had four kids. And so I think that was a, a common experience in the neighborhood that we lived in. That's where you could rent if you had Section 8 versus like Southridge is also in Beaverton School School District. And so is Beaverton High School, which those are two very different experiences than what Aloha was. Um, and so there was definitely people of color in my high school. There were very few biracial folks. There were a lot of African immigrants, specifically from Somalia. And there was a lot of Latinx people, specifically from Mexico and El Salvadorian. And I distinguish that because I remember one of the very first lessons, like being that there was very few African-American folks or biracial, my people ended up becoming like the Latinx community who kind of adopt me and were like, oh yeah, you can sit with us. And I was like, where are my people? Who are my people, you know? And one of the first conversations I remember having is I was like, oh, you're from Mexico? Cause all the other people of color, all the other Latinx people I'd met were from Mexico. And I was like, oh, you must be from Mexico, like committing a microaggression. And uh, my friend was like, no, I'm El Salvadorian. <laughs> that, that conversation stuck in my head so much because it really taught me that the Latinx experience is universal. And I never made the mistake of assuming someone was from Mexico again, because she like set me straight. She, you know, took me, took me to task for like, no, uh, uh-uh. and Mexico and El Salvadorian, she was clear are two very different experiences, very different countries. But so that was kind of my experience growing up is this multicultural where, you know, I spent weekends with my dad, I lived most of the time with my mom, who's white, my dad's black. And then at school, I was immersed in the Latinx experience and like learned Spanish and went to a lot of quince's and listened to mariachi music on the weekends. And so I had all these unique experiences, but it wasn't really until college when I went to Portland State University that I felt connected to my blackness. And that was through black studies, being able to um, study the history and the African diaspora, that's when I started to really see like, oh, dang, this is powerful stuff. I need to connect with this um, on a deeper level. And so I think there's probably people who live in Oregon and get that in their schooling, but that certainly wasn't my experience. The only time we talked about Black people or Blackness was when we talked about slavery 
or when we talked about uh, Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that about, not sure if you were, I, I'd heard recently, because I've been doing some stuff with a Beaverton sort of BSU advisors group that I guess apparently now Aloha has the highest sort of Black population in, I guess, like the Beaverton School District, which, you know, it's interesting evolution from the time you were talking about. But uh, also, you know, it's interesting you talk about, you know, kind of like finding that real uh, connection through Black studies. Is that what kind of got your interest as far as kind of going and working in education? Um, yeah, I think, well, I had this one particular experience that sort of changed the trajectory of my life. Um, for a long time, I had thought I wanted to be like a flight attendant or I wanted to travel basically for my job. So I was looking at all the, the jobs I could do to travel, but it was my junior year. I was in AP history, which is like the advanced placement history class. And we had this activity where you had to convince um, your partner that um, affirmative action was you were assigned basically the topic was affirmative action you're pro you're con and you're supposed to debate about it yeah we were in <laughs> yeah right <laughs> can you see i've i've since talked to my history teacher because we stayed in contact and she was like i just want to apologize again <laughs> you know but but yeah so that's the thing we were talking about the 1990s in this history class we had gotten to somewhat present day so i'm partnered with someone and i'm like having to convince and I remember I just was like shut down. I was like, this is wrong. Like I shouldn't have to explain this. And I sat down and just was done. And my teacher came up and talked to me and she was like, oh, I hear you, Alexis. Like, I really see you. And from that moment, I was like, I wanna teach. I Like, this is bullshit. <laughs> this whole activity is bullshit. This topic is bullshit. Like, I'm gonna teach history and I'm gonna teach it from the perspective of black people. Like, that was my, 17 year old brain. And so I immediately when I went to college, I majored in history and black studies. And I knew from day one that I was going to be a teacher. And I was like, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to do it. I took like a detour because I was like, well, maybe I want to be a curator. So I worked at the Smithsonian for a year. But I was like, no, this is boring. <laughs> I want to be a teacher. And so that is definitely the connection to black studies. I was like, yes, I'm going to take all of this into my classroom. It's going to be so great. Didn't exactly work out that way. Spoiler alert. It's really hard to teach blackness within white supremacy, but I think we know that. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's, it's again, it's a process. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you got interested in working education. You were another uh, connection we have found out later is that you were with oh, SMART yeah. for a while. Uh, so you could just, you talk about, yeah, sort of like your experiences, uh, what got you working with SMART specifically? And I guess for people who don't know what SMART is, uh, Start Making a Reader Today. It's a program where, you know, volunteers work with, uh, you know, they read with students in different, I think it's not, now it's just like Portland, it's, it's Beaverton, other areas kind of throughout the state as well. But, you know, I've volunteered there for a little bit, reading with, you know, reading with kindergartners and whatnot hoping to build and promote literacy. But anyways, yeah. Could you just talk about that for a little bit? 
Yeah, it's a pretty magical program because we know that there's a big literacy gap and it typically is disproportionately experienced like most things, people of color and children living in poverty. So SMART works to address that. But um, I think for me, so I had gotten really burnt out in the education system because I felt like I was being asked to perpetuate racism on people who looked like me under the guise of like, trust me, it's what's best for you kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But um, education is a very siloed industry and it's people outside of the education industry, I don't think see value in what teachers do. So like going from a teacher to an executive, you couldn't, there's no way people would be like, but you have zero experience in the corporate field or going from a teacher to government people, are like, but you have zero experience in government. It's reality being a teacher or in particular being like an administrator, you're essentially a director of HR, but trying to convince people of that was really hard. So I needed kind of a stopgap or a transition period to be able to exit education and into a different field. And SMART was really that pathway for me because it was very much in line with education and all of the information and knowledge that I carried from being a teacher and from being an administrator helped me be a better program director at SMART because I knew the language I could, because a lot of that role is finding partnerships with schools and teachers who want to bring SMART into their classroom. This was pre-pandemic. Um, and so being able, being familiar with both the pedagogy and the systems made me really good at that. And so during that work, I was able to add that value. And then for myself, I gained um, some real clear structure and knowledge around how to move DEI or equity work, anti-racism work. There's so many words for it now in um, an organization outside of the school industry. And so that it was a, like very much a symbiotic learning relationship for me. And I really enjoyed it. I think SMART is like one of the most legit places that I could suggest who like really lives their values from top to bottom, inside out. And I've experienced very few places like that. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Um, so transitioning from that, uh, you know, you said sort of like, you talked about having like a stopgap and like yeah. now you, you know, you're your own boss with Construct the Present. Uh, can you just, mm-hmm. yeah, can you talk about, I guess, where Construct the Present, like one, what you, you know, can you describe what your work is with Construct the Present and, you know, for people who, I think that comes from an Alice Walker quote, if I'm correct, but could you talk about I guess, yeah, where that name comes from. Yeah, so Construct the Present comes from an Alice Walker quote that the quote is, look at the present you're constructing, it should look like the future you dream of. And so operating from our theory of change is like what you do today matters in how you get to where you wanna go. That you can't just say like, oh, we'll get there eventually, or we're gonna create a more equitable work through this process, but literally every day has to look like the world that you want to create. And so that's kind of what where we operate from and how I spend my late nights thinking like, did I do enough? Did I push hard enough? Did I ask the right questions? Did I hold people accountable? Did I hold myself accountable? You know, because I really believe like everything I do today directly impacts. And, and oftentimes the nature of racism or oppression is it's a drip method, right? It's not that we necessarily are making these huge changes today, but it's like, one step like oh today i'm okay buying from amazon but then 
tomorrow it's a little bit easier to buy from Amazon because I did it today, <laughs> you know? And so how mm. do I every day interrupt the systems of oppression? Um, and that quote just really stuck with me. One as a teacher, because thinking about the power that young people bring and the freshness that exists and wanting to really impact their experience. But then it also has just become the quote that kind of guides the way I see the world. And so when I was come when I was creating the company, it made sense for that to be the guiding force. And so building the name then from that quote and always just amplifying black women, right? Because Alice Walker is a black feminist writer who's just phenomenal. Um, writing the color purple, which changed like how we talk about um, so much of the experience that black women faced. And what year did you start the company again? We started in about 2017. So what this is like, like almost four years old. We're we're walking, talking, <laughs> eating solid food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and were the, was there any? Like I said, I know you uh, talked about having sort of like a stopgap and everything, but. You know, yeah. with everyone, when, you know, you jump into like doing your own thing, were the, was there any, you know, fear, apprehension, anxiety about, you know, I'm yeah. all well, now. <laughs> it didn't happen overnight, you know, and I think most entrepreneurs talk about this, that it was it was like a very slow process, because when I left the classroom and I was working at SMART, I was still consulting with educational institutions. I was doing teacher training and facilitations and SMART was always really supportive. I could take PTO off or I could flex my schedule to be able to do that, keep my foot in that world. And then um, I started doing those conversations with Oregon Humanities, which exposed me to a wider um, industry. So I would be doing those things at museums or doing that conversation at a corporate for a lunch and learn or a um, legal team, you know, like I got to see all kinds of different industries. And I was like, Oh, I really like this. And then it was from there at smart where I went and worked at this company called cascade employers. And I really thought that you know, I think I've always wanted to be my own boss. Like being a teacher, you essentially in a lot of ways are your own boss. You manage your own time. You you don't get to set your schedule, but what you do once the door closes, you kind of manage. And so it became really clear to me that I needed to just like do my own thing. And I think it was, things just got so uncomfortable in being supervised that I ultimately was like, the only person who can supervise me right now is me. <laughs> and I was very scared. I was like, how is this gonna work? I'm like, I've never owned a business before and it's a service industry business. It's not like an inventory. So how do you do all of those things? And so I did quite a few informational interviews with other consultants and asked like, how do you take this work on your own? Cause I've been doing it for other people for so long, but what does it look like? What does cost look like? What does my service model look like? And I think, um having those conversations really helped me build out my internal plan and process and i just took some time to sit down and this was from advice of a friend and wrote out like all the things i knew about what it takes to create an inclusive organization and then i worked with um, a graphic designer and she kind of helped me put my information or put my thoughts onto paper in a visual way, which was really helpful because then that menu is what we called it at that time really turned into the framework for my entire business. And obviously we've iterated a little bit on that and it's expanded, but being able to have someone take what I 
was thinking and draw it or create it on the computer. Like I'm not an art person, so I don't know what she did, but <laughs> do that and see it. I was like, oh, okay, I can do this. And that, you know, that was 2017, 2019, I like fully was a hundred percent in my business. Cause up until then I was like 50, 50, 80, 20, it's, it gradually got more. And then um, I did that. And then the pandemic hit and I was like, oh no, this is scary. Nobody wants to do live training anymore. Oh, I got to pivot to Zoom. Uh, and so I did that. But then June happened and I was like, it was like, okay, I don't need to be worried about work anymore because there's such a high demand, high need. But then I had to kind of re refine my process. Because a lot of, before I was totally open to doing one-off trainings, like coming in and doing a full day or doing um, a 90 minute lunch and learn kind of thing. But after Ahmaud Aubrey, Brianna Taylor and George Floyd, to me, I felt like, no, that's not making a difference. That's just checking a box. And I refused to do any individual trainings and people were like, well, will you come train our leadership team or will you come do this? And I was like, no, we don't do single engagements. We only do year long contracts. And that was a risk, I guess, from a business standpoint, it was a risk to take because people would be like, nope, sorry, not interested. But I think what ended up happening is because we're about a year well, that was in July, but so we're about halfway through that really weeded out a lot of the people who only wanted to do anti-racism work to be performative. And it was people who are willing to to commit significant dollars, time and people resources. And it, it's definitely been inspiring, I think is the word that comes to mind these last six months because my days are filled with folks um who are who are committed and are like i want to have the hard conversation i won't i don't mind you know like i have a email responder on right now that's like hey you emailed me but the pandemic has created urgency and urgency is a form of white supremacy so i respond to emails on mondays and thursdays and like the everyone I work with, like, I think maybe if I had a different clientele, I would never have put that on. <laughs> but every all of my clients are like, Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for the list. This is so this is making me think if I'm doing you know, like the conversation that just that autoresponder has created continues to let me know that I made the right decision in June to be like, Nope, only year long engagements. If you can't do that, then I'm not for you. Yeah, that's, you know, just really being again just out front there <laughs> and being real and frank with people you know it helps like you said weed out who's serious about this and who's just you know trying to get their uh i did my uh good white person deed for the day or you know their uh their merit badge or whatever so yeah like stickers when you vote right i voted <laughs> you know could you just talk a little bit more about the specific services you provide. And before you do, I just want to, you know, be transparent for the audience. Part of this is, you know, I don't usually do like the infomercial portion of the show. I try to make this work conversational, but I get, as someone who does some anti-racist organizing, you know, I get asked all the time, hey, Bruce, do you know someone who can do this? Or do you know, like, what do, or what type of services do we need? So one, and I know with you, you've, you have probably more 
especially post last summer, a lot of times more business than, you know, you can take on. So I know that, you know, not saying everyone flood Alexis, flood <laughs> Alexis, but I also know you are great with referrals for people. So that's another thing as well. But yeah, can you just talk about the services that Construct the Present provides? Yeah, so we just do three things. We do equity audits or assessments, which is an internal um, exploration of the things that an organization is doing well and where the areas of opportunity are to implement strategy for the organization. So it's sort of four-prong four where we do a document review looking at employee handbooks, processes, policies that are written, doing focus groups with employees, community members, leadership interviews, and then um, an inclusion and belonging survey. And so from that, we take those four data points, look for themes, and then provide feedback on a roadmap to go to next. And that's kind of where I suggest everyone starting, um, whether, wherever, whoever you do it with. But really, I think the instinct is to automatically move to action in work, especially in workplaces. And I think then we make decisions based on reactivity, where someone may have said, I think this is a problem, or I think, and I really encourage folks to make database decisions the same way you would around finances or business development or marketing. You know, you're not just going out there and saying like, oh, I think this is a good idea, let's try it. You're like getting the data, you're doing the research, you're hearing from the people who will be impacted by it. And that is what I suggest in the equity audit. And then um, the second service we provide is like that strategy framework, how to operationalize DEI work, whether it's creating internal processes, structures for HR, your internal steering committee, leadership activation and cultivation, those types of things fall into that strategy piece. And then we do training. Um, and so we uh, only do training with clients who have taken advantage of other services, unless someone wants to sign up for like a six part series or um, a year long commitment because what we know is people's minds don't change after two hours, four hours, or even eight hours of content. It takes ongoing work. And I think, um, yeah, those are, those are the three things. And occasionally we consult with people on different tasks, but that's more, that's rare. <laughs> Mostly because I think, I'm not trying to sound like, elitist, but I think there's so many talented people who are doing this work that I've worked really hard to find my lane and what I think that I know the most about, where I can add the most value, build a team around that and let other people do what they do. And so that's kind of that referral, not only for capacity, but saying like, it sounds like what you do might fit into this person's wheelhouse. Let me connect you or here's their information. Like, I think you'd be a better fit for that. Yeah, and I think, you know, again, something I just really appreciate about your approach is that level of one intentionality in terms of like just, you know, purpose and, you know, doing this work the right way, but then also not, you know, not recreating some of these just problematic sort of like capitalist constructs within DEI because 
I know for me personally, it's something that's been frustrating for me to see with, you know, a lot of uh, just, you know, going around to different spaces and seeing people who, you know, basically kind of turn it into this like cottage industry for themselves, where mm -hmm. it's just, hey, I have, I know, you know, I know the phrases of the day and yeah. come, you know, again, you know, we kind of talked about at the beginning, people who will basically just come make people feel comfortable and mm -hmm. not really disrupt the systems, basically set it up to where, you know, hey, keep coming and talking to, you know, we're going to do this multi-series, uh, this multi-part series on bias, where you end up having the exact same conversation and listening to white people say ridiculousness and not get challenged. And never session. actually talk about race, right? Yeah. You talk around it in this like unconscious bias. Like, what is that? I don't, I don't do unconscious bias trainings. I get asked all the time, like, oh, will you send us your description for unconscious bias? I'm like, I don't do unconscious bias. I do anti-racism. I do white allyship. Like, everything I do names race in the title. And not to be exclusive of the other forms of oppression, but what I find is people are the least likely to talk about race. They'll talk about everything else, classism, ableism, sexism, transphobia, and never want to talk about anti-Blackness. Exactly. But I try to do it in a trauma-informed care way, right? <laughs> I'm not, like, I know, <laughs> I know racism is traumatizing both to the oppressor and the oppressed. And so I, I try to do it in a way that feels accessible, but not centering the experience of white folks and it's a tightrope you know and i'm sure there's some times where i lean too heavy on one one side or the other but but i imagine it gets people yeah. you know sometimes you know uh the experience it's a uncomfortable experience for the people or it's you know but maybe sometimes that pokes you into thinking and getting somewhere eventually at least again that's the that's the optimism he's speaking but i think mm -hmm. you know personally when we talk about people who kind of take a more i'll just call it a more grifty approach to dei i think it's the part that bothers me about it besides just the immediate is the implications because i think you know not to you know, I just said, you know, not recreating capitalist, <laughs> problematic capitalist structures. But I will say that I think when I look at like industries that have quote unquote growth potential or, you know, I do look mm -hmm. at DI and say, this is a thing that one, we're talking about a problem and issue that is hundreds of years old in the US and thousands of years old, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not going to go away tomorrow. It's not going to go away in five years. This is something that is going to be need, needed and institutionalized everywhere. And as you said, mm -hmm. there are so many people in, you know, who have specializations and are doing this work at a really high level and doing it from the right place. Like, I just say to myself, like, you know, everyone talks about job creation. There are so many opportunities for jobs that people actually need that would actually help move this society forward and actually help create an environment where people are safe and protected. 
like we could make all these things connect. But then when I look at people, when I look at one, when I look at like the grifty side, where it gives people the opportunity to say like, well, CDI is a scam, we don't need to do it and cut it out. And then there's the other side, you have like, you know, the Trump administration, basically like putting out some decree or whatever, saying we're going to just cut the funding for DEI training and whatnot. And I say, even though there's this opportunity, I also recognize that, you know, it's kind of in a fragile place where bad actors could easily kill this before we get to see like the potential of what it really has to offer. So that was a, Mm -hmm. I was going to lead that into a question and not just a rant about, uh, again, the implications of DEI as an industry, but uh, do you have any thoughts about that in terms of just, yeah. Yeah, I think I've been having this conversation a lot recently um, because I think there's a few different things happening. One, there's no, there's not enough supply, right? A lot of companies and organizations have expressed that they've reached out to everyone they can and no one's accepting new clients. And I know that's true for me, like we're booked until July. So, you know, there's that. (laughs) But I think um, also as an industry, there's this tension point of how do you ensure that the people doing the work are authentic and intentional and not, you know, snake oil salesmen. I, I hope that doesn't have like historical racist meanings. I should Google that, but, um, or this like grifter mentality, um, because there were a lot of people in July and August and September who had maybe been doing organizational development or coaching and then suddenly put DEI on their website or on their resume and were like, oh yeah, I can do this or had tip or had previously been doing um, gender work. And now it's like, oh, I, I can do race. I can pivot to that easy. It's the same thing, right? And so that has the unintentional consequence of creating mistrust within the industry. And then organizations, companies are like, ooh, I don't trust this. How can I know that this person is good at what they do essentially? And I think within the industry, there's been tension of not wanting to create barriers for folks like, oh, you have to get a certificate or you need to have done this, this and this. So how do we have this industry that then doesn't reproduce the same white supremacist ideals or gatekeeping that every other industry does? And so I don't know that we've come up with the solution yet. I think in my mind, the best way to learn is by doing and aligning yourself with people in the industry who have been working and being mentored and being willing to take maybe a lower salary or um, a pay cut in order to learn to do the work rather than going, you know, just taking a lateral move. But I think it's been difficult for those of us who are in the industry to scale because I think many people were solo entrepreneurs, just an individual taking contracts and managing our own schedules, managing our service offerings, doing all of the touch points from client development to client exiting. And scaling that is really difficult when you haven't written down everything you have. (laughs) You know, like I don't have a handbook on how to walk an organization from day one to day 366. I just 
knew it. And so I just did it. And because I'm the only person who did it, I didn't take the time to document it necessarily, except for external processes. And so internally scaling and building capacity has taken quite a bit of time and we're still not perfect, you know, but I think if more people are doing that, then there will be this next generation and there will be additional capacity. Cause I think you're right. It's not going anywhere. And in fact, the nature of racism in particular is that it just gets smarter and, you know, wiggles a little bit narrower to get into the spaces. So what do I think about the industry? <laughs> I think do your research, ask for referrals, you know, hear from people and, and ask specific questions. I've thought a lot about sort of providing resources for organizations on what should you ask? And I think asking if the org or the company has project management experience, organizational development experience, and then, you know, how they approach conversations about race and racism. Because the biggest feedback I hear, and oftentimes people call me after the damage has already been done as like the fixer, but people come in and create this division among folks of color and white folks, unintentionally or intentionally, I don't know. And then leave, you know, it's like, let me just drop this bomb. You oppress these people. You should feel like the victim, oh, poor you, and you're terrible people. I'm out, you know, and like that harms people of color because white folks are also harmed in the process, but all of the systems are set up to support their harm, to assage their harm and, and help them where people of color and in particular black and uh, gender non-conforming folks, there are no structures to support us in that moment. And so it can be really problematic. And, you know, God forbid they come in and drop that bomb where it's like, actually, Black people, you are actually the problem. The white people <laughs> are right. Thank you and good night. I'm not yeah. saying I have any stories about that. Anyways. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I have, I mean, that's another nuance that I just experienced with a client of further developing this mindset that there's something wrong with black people oh we just need to give you a coach or we just need to give you additional education or you just need to assimilate a little bit more and we'll help you assimilate by giving you a mentor and <laughs> giving you additional training where it's not really operating from the framework no the system is the problem it's not it's not the black people in the system like rather than providing a mentor why don't you completely reevaluate your management process like you know yeah, well, yeah so i think you... those are kind of Worst case scenarios is depending. Yeah. So, you know, you talked about yourself being booked up through July, but uh, what, one, congrats. Uh, but two, you know, what's next for Construct the Present? Yeah, well, we are working really hard on developing some digital content because I think what we've seen from our clients is you know you go through the training you create the strategy and then you have new hires and if you don't yet have the capacity to hire someone internally or to provide training on an ongoing basis how can you give people an opportunity to continue their education in a way that's structured but also self-directed and especially now during the pandemic, it's like, okay, if we're going to be on Zoom anyways, what are ways that you can continue your learning in a self-driven model? And so we're working on developing an online platform of content 
that we could sell licenses to and people could have access to the information sort of democratizing the education that you can do it at your own pace. Awesome. Awesome. And well, more community conversations. Cause I think that's the, that's the work that energizes me and gets me excited is when someone is not being paid to attend a training when they're doing it on their own time for their own passion. Yeah. Well, yeah, again, that's, you know, I'm going to definitely be on the lookout and yeah, I just want to thank you again for, you know, taking the time, you know, sharing your story and your insights. Cause again, you know, especially from both a just social standpoint, but then also from, you know, industry professional standpoint, like this is such a key thing, you know, happening within so many workspaces, so many educational spaces and, you know, how, you know, it's kind of like the devils in the details, like how this happens is going to be very influential on all of our lives going forward. So, you know, as again, appreciate people like you on the front lines of it, trying to do this work the right way and trying to not just do it, do it the right way for yourselves, but doing it the right way. So it opens up opportunities so other people can, you know, do this work and we can actually have like an ecosystem and infrastructure behind it that makes it sustainable and effective. So yeah, thank you again. And um, I'll figure out a good sign off one of these days, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You got to come up with one. That'll be your signature. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Alexis Braley James, everyone. Thank you for watching. Please like and share and subscribe so you can stay up to date on all of the latest videos. Thank you.